we talk about wanting to go to heaven, but we spend terribly little time thinking about heaven or taking it seriously. In fact, most of what we think about heaven is boring and wrong. To the Catholic Podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Chloe Langer, joined by my regular co-host Joe Heschmeyer of Shameless Popery and Holy Family School of Faith. Welcome, Joe. Thanks, Chloe. So if a listener is tuning in for the first time, what have we been talking about for the past couple weeks? Yeah, so this is the last of a four-part series we've been doing for Advent, and we've been looking at what are called the four last things, death, judgment, hell, and heaven. And that's the order we've gone in, mm-hmm. so that you didn't ring in the Christmas by listening to a podcast on hell. That (laughs) seemed vaguely unfitting, right? (laughs) And John Paul II also puts them in that order in a document that he has on reconciliation and penance. So it seemed kind of fitting to do them in that order. And this is also uh, the traditional four topics preached on in the four weeks of Advent on the church's calendar. But that's a tradition that's largely been lost and which seems fitting to resurrect fitting it back so we're on the last episode on heaven we're going to be talking about heaven and what it is but before we talk about what heaven is let's start off by busting some myths about what heaven is not because it turns out a lot of our normal concepts of heaven are actually too small and too selfish yeah i mean take a second i guess to the people listening here and, and just visualize heaven because a lot of us can't do it I mean, chances are, if you did this, uh, if you need to pause it and give yourself a little more time, feel free. <laughs> chances are your conception of heaven is is radically limited and probably distorted. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a necessary part of that. You know, St. Paul talks about how eye has not seen, ear has not heard, what God has prepared for those who love him. There's something unimaginably glorious about heaven, but by dint of it being unimaginable, uh, we <laughs> don't have a clear mental image of it. <laughs> And the problem is that what we substitute isn't just inferior, it's often wrong in some unhealthy kind of ways. So I want to mention three of them. Uh, The first is what's called soul sleep sometimes. And it's this notion that at least between when you die and the last judgment, when Christ comes again in glory, the soul's unconscious. It's asleep, as it were. And we talked about this a little bit, I think, in the episode on judgment. Mm -hmm. This gap between the first and second judgment. Uh, Luther famously... Uh, said, I'm inclined to agree with your opinion that the souls of the just are asleep and that they do not know where they are up to the day of judgment. I'm drawn to this opinion by the word of scripture. They sleep with their fathers. So we already kind of busted this myth, I think, two weeks ago. And we talked about how this language about sleep is fitting in two ways. Uh, The body is at rest in death, but also the soul is at rest, not in a state of unconsciousness, but in a state of entering the Sabbath rest of God, which is the promise of Hebrews, that you enter the eternal, as it were, day of rest. But on the Sabbath, you didn't just sleep 24 hours. You weren't just (laughs) unconscious. And so there are plenty of places in Scripture, like in Luke 16, with the rich man and Lazarus, 
which we see even now, the souls of both the just and the damned are quite aware of themselves, quite aware of what's going on. Uh, there are several other places that you could point to in Scripture that show that the saints know what's going on. Revelation is replete with these. Even if you go back to a really controversial example, the witch of Endor in the mm. Old Testament, when she summons the spirit of Samuel, he says, why did you awaken me from my rest? So you might think, oh, okay, therefore, like Luther, you know, oh, he was unconscious. He, he didn't know what was going on. But he does know what's going on. And then he tells Saul what's about to happen to him. And he's right. And so all of this soul sleep stuff is a misread. I mean, it's, it, there is a scriptural basis if you don't understand what those passages mean. So I get why people believe in soul sleep, but it's not true. And as Catholics, the fact that we can pray to the saints is evidence that the saints can actually hear our prayers. Right. If they were unconscious, they couldn't hear us and would have no idea. It would just be kind of mindless rambling on our side. Well, right. And it's interesting in terms of just the history of Protestantism. One of the reasons Luther was against a lot of this stuff, like praying to the saints and praying to get souls out of purgatory and all of that, is because he bought into this idea of soul sleep. Mm -hmm. And so most Protestants today would say Luther was wrong about that, but they still accept the conclusions that he draws from those bad premises. Namely, the saints can't hear you, they can't respond to your prayers by praying for you, any of that stuff. So that leads into a second error. And that's that the saints in heaven are radically detached from us, and sometimes even radically detached from each other. So think of this as like me and Jesus heaven. So the focus here, a lot of forms of Protestant Christianity, especially in America, focus on the personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that, I cannot say it enough, is good. It's good to have a personal relationship with Christ. It is how we're saved. But that personal relationship necessarily puts you in relationship with other people. Think about the two great commandments, love of God and love of neighbor. You can't just say, well, I'm only going to care about the first one. When Jesus says the second is like the first, he means it flows from the first. That if you love God, then you will love neighbor. But there's another kind of corollary to this. Christ is head of the church. And so if you said, I love you, but I want to cut your head off. It's not quite romantic. That's not, yeah, not particularly a... Uh, it's not a very loving sentiment, right? <laughs> well, that's what it's like to say, I want you, Jesus, but I don't want your church. Mm-hmm. I want you as the king, but I don't want your kingdom. Like, if you don't want to be in the kingdom of God, you don't want him to be your king. You just can't have it both ways. So at least own it. Like, if you say, I'm too good for the church, it's too sinful for me, I don't like other people, I think I'm better than them. Although, we don't usually say it that way. A lot of the critiques of the church come down to how those other people are hypocrites, or those other people are terrible sinners, or whatever. If you're going to do that, at least go all the way and say, Jesus, I'm too good for your church. I don't need it. I don't need to be redeemed. I don't need to be part of the people of God, because the other people of God aren't as good as I am. Now, hopefully... No one's going to actually go that right. full route. But this flows into um, our conception of heaven. This radically personalized, anti-communal, anti-we would say anti-ecclesial um, understanding of salvation flows into pretty necessarily how we understand heaven. And so then it all becomes me getting glory or me having one-on-one time with God. And there's not really any room for anyone else in this kind of conception. It's just... Mm-hmm. Now I've entered my bliss, and I don't care what happens to you all. 
But a lot of the critiques of the saints seem to suppose that they're living something like this. Mm. The reason Mary can't hear your prayers is because she's having a great time. She's on vacation. It's going straight to machine. She's not, you know, she's not listening to your messages because she's in her bliss. Well, that is, of course, radically unchristian. Right. The idea that we should attain our happiness in such a way that we're not praying for other people, not looking out for other people, not interceding for other people, is so contrary to Christianity and is so much the spirit of the world that once you call it out, I think most people who maybe have implicitly been believing in some kind of heaven like that kind of realize like oh right <laughs> i've been getting that from the world right. like i've just taken selfishness and, and thrown a halo on it and it's not really what scripture describes heaven as and it's not really consonant with any of the christian message about what virtue or the life of god looks like yeah or even the con- like the definition of love to will the good of the other that doesn't sound like living with god in heaven for eternity god who is love and then ignoring everyone else i'm ignoring the other And the terrible truth is, if you're living that kind of spirituality, where it's like, I'm going to get mine, I don't care about you, you're not going to get to experience what heaven's like one way or the other. Like, you're just... Probably headed the opposite way. Yeah, and barring some radical conversion, that kind of selfishness, you can throw God in there, but you're just turning him into your glorified genie to get you all the stuff you can't get on your own. Which leads to, of course, the third misunderstanding. We'll call it the celestial toy store. Uh, Billy Graham has this hilarious image in his early days as a preacher, and he backed away from this. I've I've mentioned this before, but I like it so much we're going to mention it again. (laughs) He says, we're going to sit around the fireplace and have parties, and the angels will wait on us, and we'll drive down the golden streets in a yellow Cadillac convertible. And it's this not only seemingly selfish, but also this garishly kind of uh, déclassé materialism, where it's... Very much like a worldly conception. And look, like this, I get. I get why. Any sense of heavenly glory, anytime we try to put it in earthly categories, we know we're falling short. Yellow Cadillac convertible, whether that's the preferred car of choice in heaven, (laughs) uh, is a theological question I'll leave to the uh, professionals. But no, in all seriousness, that still has worldly glory Mm -hmm. as the standard for what happiness and glory looks like Uh, the troubling thing about it is that if you're trying to live the life of god trying to live a good life because you think it's a better way to get a cadillac you haven't really broken from the idea that materialism really will make you happy that getting more stuff really will make you happy so the idea is well i can't get enough stuff here on earth or the stuff i get will rot so i'll get the really good material stuff in heaven you see how that's still a partial conversion? Yeah. That's still falling short of what heaven is actually like, what it's actually promised to us as. So all of those are, I would say, half turns towards God. Mm-hmm. They're all things that are, are too focused on ourself, and there's no real room for a, a true lived-out life of virtue in heaven. When we started this episode, we asked listeners to think of what you would describe heaven as. And I remember the first time that I was asked that question to contemplate on was probably in early high school. And it's actually during a class that was being taught by someone from Holy Family School of Faith. Yeah. So John Mark Miravalli of Blessed Memory. Uh, (laughs) Some of you know Dr. Miravalli, who's a pretty famous Mariologist. Mm -hmm. Well, his son, John Mark, is a total rock star. Amazing guy. 
And when he was living in the diocese, he worked for School of Faith. And he was, you know, very well known, especially like in Topeka. He, he kind of covered that, that area really well. So a lot of people have these great stories about him. Fantastic guy. But I know one of the, one of the stories you want to share is, is about something he introduced you to. Mm-hmm. For those who don't know, he's now teaching at the seminary, Mount St. Mary's. Um, so if you know John Mark or if you're listening, John Mark, <laughs> keep him in prayers. We'll pray for him. Uh, fantastic guy. I think he's doing the Lord's work. But will you share a little bit about this kind of five moments of pure bliss? Yeah. So the beginning of class, he'd asked us to write down in a list. And I was a ho- I'm was a homeschool kid, so I'd always had my journal with me. So I was pumped for this exercise. <laughs> um, <laughs> he'd asked us to write down our description of heaven at the beginning of class. And then class kind of continued. And we got to a point in the lecture where he asked us to write down our five top moments of joy. And I was in early high school, so that they were very, <laughs> the time that I first got my driver's license, like very small moments of joy at that point in my life. And then he asked us to pull out that list of the description of heaven and to look at them side by side. And then to look at these top five moments of joy and what are the things that are connecting these moments of joy. And so for a lot of people, they said their wedding day or when their kids were born um, or finding out really good news. And at the heart of all of these moments were joy or community, or they had seen these moments of truth or goodness in their life. And so it wasn't that they'd just gotten some really cool device. I mean, maybe, right. maybe the maybe car, some, maybe the right driver's now, license, but, <laughs> but it's, it's not like, it's not really the car itself so much as I think no, what it represents and the kind of that, right. Right. No. Yeah. Very little signs of materialism. I think we're, on a lot of the lists. And then this beautiful aha moment that has stuck with me since that lecture was when John Mark said, you know, so many times we think of heaven as what I thought of heaven back then, which is we're going to stand around in white robes and sing hallelujah till the cows come <laughs> home, which is never because this is eternity and you're stuck with it. <laughs> and cows don't go to and heaven. cows don't go to heaven. <laughs> but it was it's not something, it wasn't an image that inspired joy within me. Mm-hmm. It was an image that made me question like, okay, I'm avoiding sin and like picking the hard road on life for that. That's what I get. I don't know if I want that. But instead of seeing heaven as this eternity of days and days and days on end that have no ending or we're just praising God, instead, John Mark really encouraged us to look at heaven as those five top moments of joy in our life were just little tastes of heaven or we had gotten to encounter God to see him in the faces of those we've loved and that heaven is a culmination or a constant big moment of joy and I think we see that in the lives of the saints so beautifully one of my favorite sculptures is Bernini's Ecstasy of Mm -hmm. Teresa of Avila that you can find in Rome and it's this beautiful white marble sculpture where an angel has just pierced the heart of Teresa of Avila and you just see her face in sheer joy, sheer beauty. And you see this in the lives of other saints, Catherine of Siena as well. But that's such a radical change. That's something I can look forward to, which is so beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you talked about heaven as something that we can get a little foretaste of now. We played a little clip last week uh, about <laughs> heaven being a place on earth and saying both hell and heaven. Mm-hmm. You start to live the afterlife in this life in some limited way, granted, but it isn't like you're, you're going completely on one road and then you die and you're on a totally different uh-huh. road. You start on that journey 
in this life. So your life becomes a little more like heaven or a little more like hell as a result of your actions, as a result of your faith um, daily. I mean, from moment to moment, your decisions bring you closer to one of the two destinations. So I like the idea of taking moments of joy Mm -hmm. and really finding in them those times when you've gotten a little bit of a sneak peek about what what heaven might be like. There's a song that I originally didn't like. Uh, The Talking Heads have a song called Heaven. And it talks about the singer's struggle with this concept. Like, Mm. heaven as someplace that sounds really boring. Right. Uh, where nothing really happens. But he's singing this to a, uh, presumably to a woman that he's, he says like basically when they kiss, like he never wants it to end. Mm. And so he takes this very earthly love yep. and sees it in it very insightfully, actually. That, okay, like some things aren't just boring. <laughs> and it, you, he can start to imagine a joy that he would want to have unendingly. Mm-hmm. That it's not really like a nightclub that doesn't close. It's not really like all of the ways that maybe he'd been living that he wasn't finding that joy. So I thought it was a really insightful kind of take that uh, something in that, we would say, you know, uh, Plato talks about the ladder of loves or the ascent of loves. That there are lower and higher loves, even in this world. And the higher your love is the more it kind of draws your heart towards heaven and the more you get a real sense of what heaven might be like. Pope Benedict talks about this in Space Salvi, Saved by Hope, and he writes so beautifully about how heaven is an eternity and that doesn't mean that succession of days in a calendar, but instead something that he describes like the supreme moment of satisfaction. One thing that he writes in in Space Salvi is that we can only attempt to grasp the idea that such a moment is life in the full sense a plunging ever anew into the vastness of being in which we are simply overwhelmed with joy. It's an astonishing kind of statement. And so, you know, I was thinking as you were talking about uh, St. Teresa and ecstasy, that this notion of ecstasy is something that many of us don't have any sort of, uh, we, we've never experienced. Mm-hmm. That we live these lives that are deprived of moments of authentic joy in a really deep sense. And so it can make heaven even harder to believe in. Like, if you've been living, I mean, I pick on social media a lot because it's a personal vice. But, like, (laughs) if you're just scrolling through Facebook for hours on end, Mm -hmm. you probably aren't experiencing anything like joy. You probably feel a, a slight sense of discontent because they've discovered that if you're dissatisfied, you'll keep trying to get a little more. Fast food does this too, and like junk food and all of this. If it was really good, really uh, satisfying food, you'd have a few bites of it and you'd be done. Mm -hmm. But if they leave you a little dissatisfied, you'll reach for another one. Uh, Potato chips, I find to be particularly (laughs) bad. There's never like quite enough flavor on it to really satisfy you. And so you're like, I feel like one more might do the trick. And it won't. It never will. There's no perfect potato chip. Yes. So if you've been living that life where you haven't had any real ecstasy, any real joy, any real satisfaction in this really deep way, and part of that, again, is age. Like you said, when you're in high school, you maybe just haven't had the opportunities right, for that in, in a certain way. And Different people are wired different ways emotionally, which can make them more or less prone to that. Nevertheless, like if you do have that, oh, how much more ready you are right. 
to understand what the Christian message about heaven actually is. Uh, one of the other lines from Space Alvey that I know you like, I'm going to steal it from Go you. Go for it. It would be like plunging into the ocean of infinite love, a moment in which time, the before and after, no longer exists. Whoa, that captures it perfectly. Mm-hmm. You know, we have these kind of superficial sayings, like time flies and you're having fun. And we've had, hopefully, that experience where you're doing something, you you enter your zone, you enter the groove, you've got your rhythm going, everything is going great, and you look at the clock and think, whoa, where did those last two hours go? That sense in which time starts to fall away at these highest moments of human experience is itself a foretaste mm-hmm. for the way we're made for a happiness, a made for a joy, made for a satisfaction of fulfillment that doesn't fall away after a day or a century or, or an eternity. So when we talk about heaven and discovering the reality of heaven, we also have to talk about the Bible's shocking promise, which is divinization. A lot of modern Western Christians, including Catholic priests and preachers, typically seem uneasy to talk about divinization. But that's contrasted with the boldness that the Bible talks about divinization with. So, Joe, a couple things. For people who are first hearing that word, divinization, can you give us a short explanation of that? And then also, where does scripture, um, where in scripture do we find this promise about that part of our lives? So God became man so that man can become God. That's like the most bombastic way of putting it. And that's the way the church fathers are fond of putting it. That this notion of becoming united with God. Once you're aware that scripture makes this promise, it's all over the place. So this morning, I was actually watching, uh, Dave Rubin has an interview right now between Bishop Barron and a rabbi from Los Angeles. And they start talking about all the areas they agree on ethics and everything else. And then they say, well, where do we disagree? And Bishop Barron cut right to the chase. He said, well, Jesus. <laughs> he said, we get all these like Catholic Jewish dialogue things, but all the stuff we agree on. And he says, we, we avoid the J word. <laughs> we avoid talking about Jesus. And then he describes... This promise of divinization. Mm. He said, this is what Christ comes to present to us. In the rabbi, it says, you know, that's a non-starter. We can't go, like, no, God is so transcendently other. He can't become man and he can't make Mm. us God. So this is the heart of the Christian message. This is what makes Christianity distinct. There's nothing like this. And so just recognize this is the radical, distinctly Christian theological standpoint and we've got it watered down for centuries especially in the west where many christians are unaware that the church teaches this or unaware that the bible teaches this or unaware the church fathers taught this and so we have to reclaim this and we have to understand it very carefully and then we have to just live in that joy because it's, it's life-changing it's the reason i might add because we've obscured this part of the church's teaching that we settle for these really weak tea versions yeah. of heaven as kind of a, a primer. Think about the notion of Jesus being united with the church. Uh, in Ephesians 5, St. Paul has this marital language when he talks about the church being the bride of Christ. And he talks about how husbands should love their wives as wives love the church. And he, he talks about the church as a bride of Christ and as a body of Christ. And he talks about how no one hates their own body because they're united with it and that husbands and wives should love each other because they've been made one. And he quotes Genesis two, the two shall become one. And he says, but this is a great mystery in reference to Christ in the church. Mm -hmm. 
Now, what is he saying there? That as radical as the union is between husband and wife in which the two become one, as radical as the relationship of you to your own body, that's how united Jesus is with the church. So when we say we become God, we're just saying the two become one. We're saying exactly what St. Paul is saying there. And this is why if you read, so we read it because we're like, oh, here's controversial stuff about men and women. We live in an age of controversial stuff about men and women. Let's, let's read this and have a big debate. But we're missing the broader context. The subtext is all about the relationship of Christ and the church. And so St. Paul, you see him entering what appears to be ecstasy in Ephesians 5.31. He just, he gets overwhelmed. And so if you read that, like the crescendo is not men are great, women are terrible, or men and women are equal, or women should be in charge. It's nothing of that. Mm -hmm. It's Christ and the church are one. And it's such a radical proclamation that even Paul, the one proclaiming it, seems to be just overwhelmed by it. So with that in mind, I want to give you a couple other scriptures. John in 1 John talks about this all the time because he's talking about what it is to live in love and to be saved by love. That's what the entire epistle's about. So there's also this idea, uh, inseparable from that. What, what does it mean to be a child of God? So I want to keep those two things in mind. First John 3, the first three verses, he says, See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now we could spend a long time just unpacking that. Recognize that the claim that we are children of God should sound almost blasphemous to us. Mm -hmm. When Caesar claimed to be the son of God, he was making a bold, arrogant, blasphemous statement. When Christ presented himself as the son of God, his listeners were shocked, scandalized, and wanted to stone him to death. Yep. And John is saying... Guess what? You are children of God. And we have this watered-down version of what that means. Yep. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, and so on. They, like, we've taken this, made it sappy, superficial, and saccharine. And we've lost all the real power and potency and punch that the passage has. Mm -hmm. This is something saying, here's something revolutionary. Here's something life-changing. You're a child of the living God. The God of Israel. This supreme, transcendent, untouchable, inaccessible God has allowed himself to be accessed through the God-made man, Jesus Christ. And through entry into his life through baptism, you get to live as a child of God in a way that uh, the rest of the world can't claim. There's a sort of loose analogy in which we can talk about all of God's creatures, or at least his human creatures, because they're made in his image and likeness, as being children. There's a much fuller, realer sense in which the baptized, those who actually live in the life of grace, live as children of God. And this is a promise, and it's all over the New Testament. Well, John says that's not enough. That's what we already have. What's coming next? Indescribably good. It does not yet appear what we shall be. That's what he says. Like, what you will be is so indescribably glorious. What you will be. Have you thought about that? Like, what you will be is so indescribably glorious, you can't imagine it. Think about even just childhood development. 
When you were a baby, what it must have been like to see adults walking and running around, to see them manipulating objects, to see them being able to conduct themselves in this way that was totally beyond what you were capable of at that age. In the spiritual life, the same thing. You look around, you see these great saints, and you think, I am nowhere near them. Well, here's the good news. Little by little, God is making you more and more of an adult. And this continues onward and upwards in a trajectory. The East and West disagree whether this trajectory ends with death or whether there's an onward motion even after death. But either way, there's this onward and upward trajectory. So that what we shall be, we haven't even, like we don't have our minds around how glorious it'll be. But we do know this much. When he appears, Jesus, we shall be like him. Wait, what? <laughs> John's just casually tossing out that we will be like Jesus. Well, that's God-like. And then he says that the reason for this is that we will see him as he is. St. Bernard of Clairvaux says that you become what you love. You become like what you love. Mm -hmm. So if you love material, worldly, superficial things, if you put your heart on that, you'll become more worldly and more and more superficial. You'll start to become like what you're obsessed with. Where your heart is, there your treasure shall be, Jesus says. But your entire person will come to correspond to that more and more. And we see this even with married couples. You know, the married couple becomes more like each other as they get older. They start to understand each other better. They can finish each other's sandwiches. They can... That's a frozen <laughs> reference for those who... Totally got it. Yeah. I, I'm not proud of myself right now. But it's, it's that notion of this transformative power of love. Well... If you set your heart on Jesus, then when you see him as he is, that transformative power of love means you become like him in some really radical way. This isn't just some weird quirk of St. John's theology either. St. Peter talks about it in 2 Peter. This is chapter 1, uh, verses 3 to 4. He just opens up, basically, with this <laughs> idea. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Okay, so there you go. Already, here's everything. You've got it all from God right now. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Notice how many times Christians want to belittle the saints because they're afraid it will infringe upon Christ's glory. You can't give that much honor to Mary. That might threaten the glory of God. You can't give that much honor to the saints. That might threaten the glory of God. No, Peter says, Jesus called us to his own glory and excellence. It's not Jesus gets 80%, Mary gets 20. Jesus calls us to share in 100% of his glory. Just like if you get invited to live in your husband's house, you don't say, what percentage of this house is mine? I mean, maybe in the bedroom. Maybe you're like, you always take all the sheets. But that's not... <laughs> <laughs> The throw pillows are yours. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> throw pillows are an inexplicable <laughs> item in any household, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> the point is, is this total sharing of life together and the life of God is divine life. And that total sharing of life, which is what he promises us, which is the whole point of all this marital imagery. When Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, that's a marital image. And he wants to come and share, or wants to bring us to him, to come and bring us into that divine life in its fullness. So he called us to his own glory and excellence, by which, Peter continues, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, that through these 
You may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of passion and become partakers of the divine nature. That's what it says. This isn't just, you know, Joe's had too much coffee this morning and has some crazy ideas about the glory that is to come. Like, no, explicitly, the call, the promise, the vision of heaven given is that you're going to be like God. You're going to be a partaker of the divine nature. Think about it in this sense. Christ is, by nature, from all eternity, fully God, fully a son of God. He takes on humanity, takes on a human nature, and he becomes a son of man by adoption. Loosely, there's an analogy there. We are sons of man by nature and become sons of God by adoption. Mm -hmm. This is one of the kind of cool reasons for the virgin birth. Because it means that Christ gets adopted to prefigure the way we also get adopted. Each of us has an adoptive father. For him, it's St. Joseph. For us, it's God the Father. So we both get to live this kind of life in parallel coming to a, coming to a point. You know, we start from opposite ends of the spectrum. And there's this reaching out, what's called a kenosis, a reaching down, a, a holy condescension which God reaches down to us and pulls us up to him. And so the two points can kind of converge. So we don't become divine in nature of ourselves. We don't become gods as like rival gods, like Mars and Venus mm -hmm. or something. We become partakers of his divine nature, which is better because we're not rivals to God. We share in his divine glory. This means it's virtually impossible to give too much honor to Mary or to the saints. Because if you say, this person partakes in the divine nature, how much respect is due to them? You're probably not going to overshoot that bid. The only way you can overshoot that bid, basically, is thinking them as gods apart from God. But rather they're God-like. We can speak of them as gods in a loose sense. Mm -hmm. Jesus does in John's Gospel in chapter 9. Because they partake in what it is to be God. If you think about it also in terms of royalty, if you're married to a royal, you become a royal. You're not one by nature. You're not one by birth. But you become one through this incredible marriage. Your status is elevated. You become an equal through marriage. Even though you don't have it on your own effort, on your own authority, on your own nature, anything like that. It's, it's a gift given to you in marriage. Something like that is, is the Christian promise. St. Paul also talks about this, by the way. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3, verses 17 to 18. He says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That's exactly what St. Bernard is talking about. It's exactly what St. John's talking about. If you set your heart on God, mm -hmm. if you contemplate him, you'll become like him. And again in Romans 8, really it's 15 to 25, but just to single in on a, a certain part of that, he says, we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with so you get to enter into the life of God. If you enter into Good Friday with Christ, you also get to enter into Easter Sunday and the ascension and the glorification of Christ. That's the promise. And again, Paul sounds very much like St. John there. You're already a child, but an even greater inheritance is promised to you.
we've taken a sneak peek about how this continues to be talked about throughout the church when we use St. Augustine's uh, phrase, God became man so that man might become God. The church fathers and the saints throughout the history continue this bold proclamation of divinization. What can we learn from some of their writings? Yeah, I just want to point out that this is something that is known by the Christians right away in both the East and the West. This is the reason why I think it's a lamentable tragedy. More Christians don't know this is a Christian message. And what's even more remarkable in some way is that we're afraid to proclaim it because we're like, oh, it'll sound too much like paganism or sound too much like idolatry. The early Christians boldly proclaimed it to pagans, to idolaters, and said, here's the difference. So like St. Justin Martyr, this goes back to like the 150s AD, is writing the first apology. He's juxtaposing Christianity and paganism. He's showing the pagans why they're wrong and defending Christianity, even though he knows that he's going to die. He wasn't originally Justin Martyr. He was just Justin. <laughs> the martyr part the Romans gave to him. So he rebukes the Romans for their belief in the deification of the emperors. The idea that the emperors, by virtue of being emperors, would become God. Or becoming gods. And he, he says that wicked devils perpetuated or perpetrated these things. But then he says something really remarkable. You might just think he says, and we have nothing like that in Christianity. There's only one God. Well, there is only one God. But he says, and we have learned that those only are deified who have lived near to God in holiness and virtue. We believe that those who live wickedly and do not repent are punished in everlasting fire. Isn't that remarkable? Mm -hmm. He doesn't just say, nothing in this idea is right. He's just saying, you have the wrong idea of how to become like God. But then offers them this beautiful, full version of that. Like, you think you have it great with an emperor who claims to be like the gods. God is calling you to be like him. And that's the ultimate goal. Exactly. And notice, it's not something just for the emperors. No. Uh -uh. You're a priestly people, a royal nation. Like, this notion that every member of the church is called to what at best they had a partial understanding of for the emperor and paganism so that i mean again that's the 150s irenaeus of leon riding around maybe 180 in a book called against heresies it's fantastic he said the only true and steadfast teacher the word of god our lord jesus christ who did through his transcendent love become what we are that he might bring us to be even what he is himself. That's it right there. That's this notion. God became man. Man could become God. The whole reason for Christmas is inseparable from this idea of divinization, being destined for heaven. Irenaeus also says that those who have not received the gift of adoption, but who despise the incarnation of the pure generation of the word of God, defraud human nature of promotion into God. That's the phrase, promotion into God. And prove themselves ungrateful to the word of God who became flesh for them. Isn't that remarkable? Mm -hmm. And then he responds to those people, the ones who want to defraud us out of divinization, by saying, for it was for this end that the word of God was made man. And he who was the son of God became the son of man. That man, having been taken into the word, and receiving the adoption, might become the Son of God. Notice that this gives a whole new meaning to what it means to be a child of God. And then he goes on to talk about how 
By no other means could we have attained incorruptibility and immortality unless we'd been united to incorruptibility and immortality. But how could we have been unless first incorruptibility and immortality had become that which we also are? So that the corruptible might be swallowed up by incorruptibility and the mortal by immortality, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Let me break that down. One of the other ways the church fathers talk about this, it's maybe a little clearer, is that God, by his nature, is immortal and incorruptible. He takes on mortality. Jesus takes on a nature capable of being killed so that he can die for our sins, so we can live his life and take on immortality. So he trades us. He takes on our mortality to give us his immortality. But it is his immortality that we participate in. And the good news of that is that it's his glory that we participate in also. It's not just like if you're a, a CPA, you go on being a CPA for an endless century upon <laughs> century upon century. It's not that. It's that something much greater happens. You get to live the life of God. And you can live it in big ways and little ways right now. By just doing things that God would want you to do. I can't remember if we've talked about this example with Mother Teresa and Hitler. I don't think we have. Okay. We can't pass that up. <laughs> well, those two people both lived lives at opposite ends of the spectrum, obviously. In which people said, how could a mere human being do that? Mm. How could they live that kind of life? And the answer in both cases seems to be a mere human person couldn't do it. That in one case, you have a guy who seems to be cooperating with supernatural forces of evil, doing things beyond the inherent mere human capacity for evil. This is why the Council of Trent, and the church in general, speaks of the world, the flesh, and the devils. That the devil is at work. It's not just your own sin. It's not just the sin of like the broader culture. There's also a supernatural enemy, the devil, who wants you to do wicked things. And there are certain things in this life that are so depraved, so evil, you can maybe a little hint. This is beyond the human capacity for evil. Fortunately, the same thing is true in reverse with Mother Teresa. That she's living this life of self-giving and pouring herself out beyond human limitations in a real way. I mean, find me an atheist who lives 50 years among the poor in Calcutta. Mm -hmm. It is beyond the normal human limitation. And that's only possible by participating in the life of God. By participating in the life of one who's poured himself out more radically than any of us ever could. So it's easy to look at the Christian life and say, it's too much, it's impossible. And Christ is basically like, yeah, I know. But all things are possible with God. So if you're trying to do it all on your own, yeah, you're going to hit a wall. You're going to hit a limit. You're going to burn yourself out. You're going to be exhausted. And this is, I think, a, a common problem people fall into. They won't take time to pray because they have too much to do. Yep. Well, you're trying to do it all on your own. You're going to run out of steam very quickly. So the life of God, living in that, living a life of prayer in which you live the mysteries of Christ in your own life, that's the kind of promise that we're given. And so even now, uh, that promise is available to us. So I want to give you just a couple more. I know we're going to have a slightly longer than normal episode. It's Christmas well, Eve. You don't have anything to do. Exactly. You're realize <laughs> This is a vacation life it's episode. Holy leisure. <laughs> uh, Athanasius of Alexandria has a really famous bit about divinization. He lived from 296 to 373. So this is still pretty early mm -hmm. on. He said that Jesus indeed assumed humanity 
that we might become God. He manifested himself by means of a body in order that we might perceive the mind of the unseen Father. He endured shame from men that we might inherit immortality. We often hear immortality just as like not dying. But the early Christians had a much richer notion of that, this living this life of God forever kind of thing. Uh, and Augustine, as you've already alluded to, says, Beloved, our Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal creator of all things, today becomes our savior by being born of a mother. Beautiful Christmas homily, yeah. by the way. Of his own will, he was born for us today in time so that he could lead us to his father's eternity. God became man so that man might become God. The Lord of angels became man today so that man could eat the bread of angels. Now there's a whole other episode we could do on this interesting connection between the Eucharist and divinization, divine life. Suffice it to say, it is the pledge of future glory. That's how the church speaks of it. If you read John 6, Christ makes specific promises connected with the Eucharist and living the life of God in eternity. Augustine's referring to all of that here. And these ordinary things of life, going to daily Mass, regularly receiving the Eucharist, living this life of simple holiness, you're being prepared to live evermore the life of God because you have this moment of real communion, real contact with God. How can we as Catholics talk about divinization or becoming like God, becoming God, when we believe that there is only one God? And so how can we balance this conversation with one like polytheism or multiple gods? Right. I mean, again, I just said we don't water it down. Mm -hmm. But we do understand what we do and don't mean by it. So just like we talk about Jesus as God, and God the Father is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and we don't believe in polytheism, the reason is because of the Trinity. There's not going to always be a really quick, easy, simple explanation for it. But we don't say, oh, let's not talk about the divinity of Jesus or the divinity of the Holy Spirit because someone might misunderstand that as polytheism. No, you proclaim the truth mm -hmm. and then you just make the nuanced distinctions. Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord. And if you want to misunderstand that as polytheism, that's kind of on you. But here's what we mean by that. That's kind of the Trinitarian approach. Something sort of similar is true with divinization. Except here, we don't become of the divine nature, we partake of the divine nature. Athanasius, I mentioned him a second ago, he explains this with good nuance. He says, For as, although there be one Son by nature, true and only begotten, we too become sons, not as he is nature and truth, but according to the grace of him that calls. It's like that. Like, if you're comfortable saying you're a child of God, Jesus is the son of God. You're also a son or daughter of God. But you're not rivaling his claim of sonship. You're participating in it. Right. The same is true of his divinity. And then Athanasius gives other examples where we do this. He talks about the word merciful. Well, only God properly has right to that title. But you can refer to another person as merciful, not because they have this other storehouse of goodness apart from God, but because they participate in some limited way. In God's own mercy. When Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's only one good. He's not saying, I'm not good. <laughs> He's trying to get us to think more deeply about what we mean by goodness and where goodness comes from. And we read this passage and we just don't do it. We don't think about it. No. But that's what he's trying to encourage us to do. Where does goodness come from? So if a person can be good, if a person can be merciful, any of these positive, pleasant attributes, 
they are participating in that extent in these divine qualities because it is a divine quality to be good, Mm -hmm. to be merciful, to be just. So if all of that's true, the culmination of that is that a person living all of that out and all of that out fully like the saints in glory is living the life of God. They're doing all of the godly things. And if a person is godly, they're godlike. That's what that means. I mean, we just use different words. They mean the same thing, people. If we say they're godly, we mean they're godlike. So hopefully this is a maybe a fresh take in how we understand heaven. Uh, a lot of Protestants, I mentioned this kind of earlier, they're worried uh, that this is blasphemy. Even a lot of Catholics are worried this is blasphemy, and I get it. So I just say, they, that gets it totally backwards. Because it's only through divinization that we can enjoy and praise God to the fullest. So two quick points. Again, being mindful of the fact this is vacation late. <laughs> the first, having any participation, any glory from God. If we want to say how much is too much, there's only one person who can answer that question, which is God. If God wants to give you a little bit of glory, is he blaspheming? Of course not. If he wants to give you a little more glory, is he blaspheming? So the rubric, the standard, the criterion needs to be how much glory does God mean to give to this person, to this saint, whoever. And so look at scripture. Look at at all the stuff we just listened to. There's the standard. That's the answer. So if you're giving them that much glory, we're imposing these selfish, idiotic human categories on God. Like we might feel our ego threatened if someone else also got an award with us. We want to be the only one. Someone else also shared in our glory because we're selfish, stupid little creatures. But God isn't, and he's not threatened in sharing his glory. I mean, Peter tells us that. When we hear about God being a jealous God, we mean he's jealous of sin. He's jealous of anything that draws us away from him. He's not jealous of being drawn towards him. He's not jealous of like the saints leading us into a better understanding of God. That's absurd. That totally misunderstands Christianity and its most simple, most fundamental level. The other thing I wanted to say. We are limited in the amount that we can love God because of our limited nature and because we love so little. So even when we try to love God, we do it very inadequately, very, very limitedly. The example I've used in the past, pet owners tend to hate this because they tend to personify their pets a little too much. You can love your pet, but the amount that it can love you back is radically limited. And if you think it's not, then you have a misunderstanding of your pet on a very deep level. You're projecting your own feelings onto your pet in an unhealthy way. Just saying. We are burning all the bridges. Yeah, we're, we're going to just torch the bridges as a little winter solstice <laughs> fire. In, in all reality, your pet doesn't have a rational soul, cannot love you as much as you want them to. Which is why I think pet owners have a, a really, in some ways, a healthy desire For something more like a human love. And so imagine if you could give your pet rationality such that they could love you more. If you could raise their nature to enable them to love as much as you love them. Are you threatened by that? Do you find that somehow like, oh no, I should be the only human in this house. Like, what? No. That's not, like, that just isn't how intelligent, selfless creatures operate much less how God operates. So in making us like him, he enables us to give him the love 
and the glory that he deserves. Because otherwise, it is very much like an animal trying to love its master. It's, it's way too limited. So there's something, hopefully, we haven't burned all the bridges too much. We can have a separate episode on pets. <laughs> why cows don't go to heaven, as mentioned previously in the episode. But the idea is that it's transformative of our nature. So not only is this not blasphemy, this is the only way to give God the glory due to him, is by transforming us to be the kind of creatures that can share in divine life and love God which was ultimately God's own love. What does this mean for you as a listener when this episode ends and you go on to Christmas celebrations? If you have an understanding of heaven with this idea of divinization, how does that change the way we live as Catholics? I think one way is that it really encourages us to not cling to the past too much and think back to those top five moments of joy. If you think that those are the only moments of joy you will ever experience in your life or the life to come, you're going to cling to those like nobody's business, and rightly so. But if you have this beautiful vision of heaven and the beatific vision and divinization, you know that there's so much more to come, so much that you can't even imagine the joy that's coming. And so I think that's one of the main ways that we see this played out in our daily life is that we don't have to cling to the past so much. Right. It contextualizes and reframes right. disappointment. So everything else you've done up to this point, I mean, a brief academic example. When you know how you did in the class, if you got an A in the class, all the little stuff you were worried about before, it's of less importance. Mm -hmm. If you know the final's worth 90%, for example, then like, yeah, maybe you made some mistakes and you can learn from them before the final. But you don't dwell on those little things because you know everything you need is, is yet to come. Mm -hmm. And so you just live towards that. I think too beautifully it helps us realize that the decisions that we make have that eternal value. We talk about becoming what we love. And so if we're desiring to love Christ here on this earth, here in this season, perpetual in our own life season of Advent, then we realize that that is helpful to our divinization. We're, we're striving to become like God, which is our ultimate call. Yeah, there's this often this idea that Christianity is unfair because someone can have a deathbed conversion that they can, in either direction, frankly, they could, you know, seemingly live a great life and then have this last minute, like, change of heart or they could live a terrible life and have a moment of, of real uh, grace at the end where they come to love Christ. But for most people, it's going to be the result of your lifelong actions. Now, the, the beautiful thing is it doesn't have to be the ones you've made so far. If your actions up to this point have been leading you towards hell, you don't have to keep going that way. That's where the promise of redemption, that's where the transformative power of grace comes in. But there is this sense in which being prepared for the hour of death isn't the work of an hour, it's the work of a lifetime. Mm -hmm. And so you have the rest of your life to prepare to die well so that you can live in eternal glory. And because this is a very, very short span of time. And then all of that time afterwards, like, well, that's what it's all about. This is just getting us ready for the final exam. So we hope that you have had a blessed Advent. Well, I know we've loved preparing for Advent this year with you with this series. It's just been really a joy to walk through these final four things. We hope that you join us next year in 2019, where we'll be talking about cell phones and cows in episodes <laughs> to come. Hopefully some Catholicism <laughs> as well. It's just a Merry Christmas from us here at the Catholic Podcast. And we'll close the episode in a prayer. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And I am the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Catholic Podcast is an initiative of the Holy Family School Faith Institute. To find out more, or to see how you can contribute to our mission, check out www.schoolfaith.com.
Thank you.